about the latest episode of Bad Faith Podcast and also talk about whatever else is on your mind going on in the rest of the world. I'm very glad to be joining you today on this beautiful Friday evening. Much of the East Coast has seen a little sprinkling of snow. I'm feeling kind of positive and warm and cozy, hence the vocal stylings of one of my faves, uh, Stevie Wonder. Uh, I hope I don't get sued for doing that, but let me tell you, I think it's worth it. (laughs) I'm very interested to see what you guys thought about this week's episode. Um, Some of you were saying it's one of your all-time favorites. I agree. Um, When I first heard uh, on uh, the Macro and Cheese podcast, uh, Professor Fidel Kaboob talking about MMT, subjects that weren't really new to me. Uh, probably weren't really new to you. I interviewed Stephanie Kelton over on the Bernie podcast, Hear the Burn, you know, and she is also an amazing communicator and I learned a lot from that. But when I heard uh, Professor Kaboob speaking, somehow it just really clicked for me. And I especially appreciated him being able to provide some perspective with all of the arguments that are circulating about inflation, what's to blame, how much we can spend, what to spend. And then that he would engage in a broader political conversation with me about what progressives should be doing in this moment and how they could be really serving a role in elevating this conversation about MMT um, now that they are neutered in so many other respects, but could be at least using their positions and their voices to help laying the field for the next Bernie style candidate um, so that he doesn't have to engage in all of these. How will you pay for it? Conversations um, that ultimately stymie progressive progress. I see there's already a cue. So I'm going to stop prattling and take day. The first caller. Whoops. Okay. Jonathan, sorry. I don't know what happened there, but go ahead and unmute yourself and let's hear from you when you're ready. Hi, Bree. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. I wanted to touch on um, sort of a common thread that I've noticed in a lot of bad faith episodes that this particular um, recent episode made me think about that I wanted to get your take on. And that is how the academic left is often on the forefront of pushing um, progressive social issues, but not nearly 
uh, to the same extent do they generally push economic issues. And mm. I would say that um, as an example, uh, just to use my own experiences personally, I went to UC Berkeley for my college degree and um, I studied for a bachelor's in applied mathematics and I ended up choosing economics as my concentration. So I ultimately ended up taking four econ classes while I was in school. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you're aware of the image that um, Berkeley has, the reputation, especially among right-wing media as just this giant compound of hippies and such. But <laughs> I think things have changed quite a bit since uh, the free speech movement of the 60s. I think Berkeley today, it really is a school that churns out corporatists year after year. And mm. the um, that's I think that's largely a consequence of the proximity to Silicon Valley and the very strong business school and engineering programs there. But yeah, m- my economic classes there were very neoliberal, um, I think bordering on free market fundamentalist, even in some cases, like our, my intro econ class is very much um, the textbook you could tell was pushing like corporate, low corporate taxes, good, less regulation, good stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I think the most ruthlessly capitalist concept I learned in that class was that they, uh, the, the textbook posed that there was a so-called natural rate of unemployment, if you mm. can believe it, which mm. in the context of the U.S. means that there's naturally a segment of the population that can't afford housing, can't afford to provide for their children and does not have health care. So I'm so, I'm wondering, um, you know, if, if you've sort of observed the same thread that I have in a lot of modern economic scholarship um, and a lot of elite schools. I know you went to Harvard, although you've reiterated that you didn't take any econ classes there, but not a one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm just wondering what your opinion is on, on why um, things are that way. Why there's no, why, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> why capitalism is seen just as the one and only economic system and nothing else is viable. And social democracy is, even something that's kind of very foreign concept to these kinds of institutions. Yeah. So my experience with the economics discipline really came in law school where law and economics is a kind of field. I don't know if that's the right word to describe it, but it's a common thread through a lot of the subjects that you take. And it is conservative in all the same ways that mainstream economics are conservative as I understand them to be. I'm not a, a special, especially hip historian in this respect, but my understanding is that the Chicago school had this enormous influence on both the economic profession and the legal profession. Um, and we've talked a little bit on the podcast about the Powell memo and the very concerted right-wing efforts to change education, make it less accessible to all shutting down the California free public college system um, creating a lot of these student debt crises we have today because they understood the radicalizing ability of college campuses and how much energy was coming out of the college campuses in the 60s and 70s and that the Chicago school had this um, wide-ranging influence partly because it was funded to have that kind of influence and you know about organizations like the Federalist Society in the legal context but that they're similar 
um, organizations that pushed a certain kind of kind of economic perspective. And the person who really enlightened me to the contours of that debate was a professor of mine that was in retrospect, a Marxist, so that he didn't identify that way, named John Hansen, who was a law and economics professor, but a progressive one, and who really explained to us in the context of our torts, and I also had him for, um, uh, what do you call it, um, corporate law, uh, explained in the context of those classes exactly how many of the assumptions that first-year economics students are apparently presented with are these kind of fundamentally conservative assumptions. And in the corporate law context, one of those assumptions is, you know, who is the most vulnerable constituency group that we're here to protect? And the answer is, you know, shareholder. And there's no question about how the world could be structured any differently. I am extremely excited to welcome uh, Professor Fidel Kaboob into the chat, though. And so I'd really like to hear him answer this question if he would like to unmute himself and weigh in on why he thinks that economics is as conservative a discipline as it is today. Welcome, Professor. You just have to um, press the little microphone in the bottom right-hand corner to unmute yourself so you can speak. There you go. Thank you. Well, thank you for, for having me back you know, a couple of days later. It's a pleasure. Look, sometimes <laughs> I don't want to... I don't want to ask guests to come on the calling because I don't want them to feel inundated with requests. But I saw you were you were here, and I'm so excited to be able to talk to you sure. some more. Well, this is actually a, a great question, and, and you're absolutely right that the, the, the legal profession is, is just as bad when it comes to um, uh, you know, framing the, the role of um, uh, economics and, and public policy. And uh, it's, it's not surprising that the two disciplines are actually you know, attached to the hip, so to speak, because when you think of um, any economic transaction that we deal with, we deal with contracts, right? Mm. The legal agreements to deliver a certain thing at a particular time under certain conditions and, and there's terms of conditions attached to it, which means this puts lawmakers at the center of public policy. Mm. We talk about designing contracts, even in finance, when people talk about financial innovation and financial engineering, it's not the same thing as engineering and the sciences. It's literally about writing a different contract under different terms and conditions to create a new financial instrument, a new financial product, a new legal contract. So everything we do in business and economics and, and daily economic interactions is framed um, by a legal framework. And laws are made by lawmakers, mm -hmm. which means they can be modified, adjusted to produce a different system design, to produce a different um, outcome in terms of economic and, and quality of life, which means the the role that the 535 people we elect is even more important than most people think in terms of, you know, voting every two years or every four years, which means the outcomes that, that we live with today are the result of the laws and the legal framework that they create to frame economic transactions and to channel and distribute resources and power, economic power in the system. Um, so we need to do more in terms of tying uh, the efforts within academia between uh, economists and legal scholars who work in this uh, alternative tradition. And uh, Harvard Law School has a lot of good friends who are actually working with our team, mm. uh, the MMT team on this. Um, I'm curious to know who 
who are some of the professors you worked with, but people like David Kennedy, mm. uh, Duncan Kennedy, and others, mm-hmm. are, and, and Chris Desan, of course, is, is one of the leading scholars in this space as well. Yeah, so I never had Duncan Kennedy. Um, my professor that I'm always talking about, his name is John Hansen, and I think he might be on a sabbatical or something right now. I've been desperately mm-hmm. trying to get him to come back on the show, but he had... He was a lot of economics, uh, had a lot of economics background, but also um, did a lot of, uh, applied a lot of uh, psychological concepts to um, his work and had this like thing he called the situationist blog where he basically went through case law and interrogated the extent to which these outcomes were not only driven by like the, uh, the case law outcomes were driven not just by, obviously it's not it's not objective. (laughs) So first off, but that the subjectivity was driven by not just kind of um, the economic stakes of the players in the game and the winners and losers that we already understand in our kind of hierarchical, you know, capitalist system, but also because, you know, this, how the decision makers use a just world hypothesis and kind of like system justification to write their um, opinions so that the, extent to which they were just serving their own class interests weren't so transparent and how psychology was, has been deployed to, you know, make the system seem just and equitable and neutral, uh, despite the fact that it's so obviously isn't. I mean, it's very charitable even to say our, our system of laws are written by elected officials as opposed to the lobbyists that puppeteer their strings. This is a more cynical way to even, right. to even put it. But I, I want to follow up on the, on, um, uh, sorry, Jonathan's question and ask you, I mean, what is it like to be a leftist in the field? Do you find yourself having allies? Is it, does it surprise you at all um, to have such an uphill battle or that even in places like Berkeley, the um, uh, economics department is so conservative? Yeah. I mean, things really started to change in the, in the sixties in terms of how conservative the economics profession became uh, and, and it really ripples through the system. For example, when students are exposed to alternative economic thinking at the undergraduate level, it's typically in a course called the history of economic thought, which is really a history of economic ideas, Marxism, feminism, Keynesianism, institutionalism, all of these schools of thought are introduced to you in this single class, which is a standard class that I took when I was an undergrad. I was fortunate to have this class. But what happened is that starting in the 1970s, most economics departments started to cut and completely eliminate those courses from the graduate level and undergraduate level, which means the curriculum is introducing you to a single approach to economics, which is the dominant mainstream neoliberal, neoclassical economics. So you can't blame the students. They go through what they think is economics, and that's the textbook model, that's the framework, and there is no alternative, just like uh, Margaret Thatcher said, there is no alternative. So mm-hmm. the handful of programs that continue to teach history of economic thought, um, lots of liberal arts colleges, a-, a handful of graduate schools, I mean, literally, I can count them on a, you know, one hand, um, still teach the history of economic thought from a critical uh, thinking perspective, alternative thinking perspective. Uh, still produce economists who have a broader, more nuanced understanding of the economy. But the the standard approach is to teach um, more mathematical modeling, more textbook-style 
kind of uh, free market oriented economics. The little bit of critical thinking you get at a place like Berkeley is really, you know, tinkering around the edges as opposed to fundamentally questioning the system. Mm. Uh, and, you know, fast forward a few decades later, you have an entire economics profession that's void of uh, critical thinking when it comes to the interdisciplinarity uh, uh, of, of the issues that we, that we try to tackle. For example, yeah. when you think yeah. of poverty or climate change, these are multifaceted, very complex problems that require critical thinking, interdisciplinary thinking. They're not narrowly economic problems per se. So when you cut the economics discipline from its neighboring disciplines in the social sciences and you do it systematically, you completely kind of uh, break uh, any possible alternative thinking that is um, inspired by uh, nuanced or realistic approaches to economics. Yeah, I mean, I remember Professor Hansen saying just, you know, on a really basic level, you know, you start Economics 101 and they say, you know, willingness to pay equals ability to pay. And he says, no one ever stops you and asks you if that has been your experience in life. <laughs> like, it, do, you know, it, it, is that basic kind of mark, fundamental market assumption that, you know, willingness to pay, can't, can't you imagine scenarios where you're very, very, very willing to pay for things and you are not able to pay for things? <laughs> like, And to have a whole discipline that only at the end of your schooling challenges those presumptions and then certainly doesn't connect it to the broader social implications of structuring a society based on that those presumptions, you know, to your point, is mind-boggling. And as someone who had never yeah. learned anything from about economics, to be, you know, I had the good fortune of being presented you know, the discipline being presented to, to me only through a more progressive lens. You know, that was one of the most radicalizing experiences of my entire educational life, just sitting there in that corporate law class. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Jonathan, does that, um, did you have any follow-ups? Oh, well, not really. I just, uh, I just really enjoyed hearing you both discuss my question about why it is that economics programs in the 21st century U.S. higher education system are so conservative. I thought it was really interesting, and it, it did reflect um, a lot of my experiences in school. So thank you both very much. Well, thank you for calling in, Jonathan. Uh, Day, you are the next caller. What's on your mind? Oh, Day keeps disappearing. All right. Free Assange Chris, you are the next caller. Hey, Bree. Good evening. How was your pizza the other night? Did you... Uh... Was it cold? I hope it was still warm when you it got was to it. ice cold, but uh, I uh, own an oven and I remedied that. All right. <laughs> excellent. What's on your excellent. mind today, Chris? Hey, so, you know, this inflation stuff's just really interesting. And I remember I at a time used to follow an economist by the name of Paul Krugman. Hmm. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he's got some. He's a smart enough person, and um, I remember, you know, I used to follow him a lot right after the 2008 recession mm. and and everything that followed from that, and something that he kept saying that I've never been able to fully understand or, or that, from my perspective, doesn't always hold true is that inflation helps debt holders, and um, by 
deflating the value of the debt. And I know this is a little more academic than the conversation that's been had, but I was hoping that the professor would have some some uh, sentiments on this and maybe be able to explain it or offer his, his uh, opinions on that. Like, to me, the only way inflation helps debt holders is if their wages are also going up by at least, you know, going up by what inflation is. And... That's just never a guarantee. In fact, generally in economic hard times, wages, wage increases don't tend to happen. We've had some happen uh, lately, um, but it doesn't seem to be a standard aspect of, of economic downtimes. So I guess I guess that's sufficient. Yeah, um, great, great question. Thank you for that, Chris. Can, yeah, thank you. Very good question, Chris. So... Uh, what you stated is, is absolutely correct. The, the beginning part and also the, the, the last part about wages uh, going up and the fact that it's not guaranteed. But to, to keep it simple, essentially inflation means the average price level of everything we, we buy is increasing month to month, year to year. And what it does, uh, it essentially makes the purchasing power of a single dollar bill in your, in your pocket, that purchasing power goes down. Meaning with the same dollar bill, you can afford to buy fewer and fewer things with inflation, which means at the same time, if you've borrowed money from a bank or from anybody, when you pay them back in the future with dollar bills that are worth less and less, it's helping you out as a borrower. So you always want some inflation as a borrower. The worst thing that could happen to you as a borrower, if you buy, if you borrow money to, to buy a factory or to, or to buy a house or, or whatever, the worst thing that would happen is deflation. That's why deflation is actually more dangerous than inflation and, and central banks around the world try as much as they can to avoid the, the deflationary cycle, uh, which is why since 2008, by the way, all central banks around the world have been targeting inflation to, to move it from close to zero to at least 2% to avoid the negative territory, the cycle of deflation. And I'll tell you why. Let's say you borrowed $10 million to build a factory and then deflation happens. With deflation, instead of the value of your dollar bill going down over time, the value of the dollar bill increases over time because everything is getting cheaper. That's what deflation is. So with the same dollar bill, you can afford to buy more goods and services. Now, if you've borrowed money and deflation happens, every dollar you pay on your debt in the future is actually worth more and more to you. So you want inflation. You don't want deflation. And it's worse than that because the value of your wealth, your assets, your, your house, your, your, your car, your prop- any physical property that you own with deflation is worth less and less because everything is cheaper. So your wealth is decreasing and your va- the real value of your debt is increasing with deflation. Nobody wants that. It's actually cycles of deflation are the most dangerous things we've experienced in economic history. The Great Depression was a period of great deflation. Mm. Right? We want inflation, but not too much, obviously. We want modest amounts of inflation, reasonable levels of inflation. And also, as you've suggested, Chris, we want wages, Right for working class, for middle class people to increase, to keep up with inflation, to um, gain more in terms of real wages uh, in the same way that their productivity increases. And that becomes a labor struggle. 
This is not a given. It doesn't happen automatically in free markets. That's why you have to have labor unions. That's why you have to have labor laws. That's why you have to have public policy to pre-distribute wealth, not redistribute, <laughs> pre-distribute from the beginning. We don't create poverty and say, uh-oh, we made a mistake here. Let's try to give the poor a little bit of you know, the excessive wealth that the rich have. You design labor laws and public policy so that wealth is distributed evenly as soon as it's created, right? So what, hap- what about this question of what happens, though, which is not really a hypothetical, it's kind of where we are, when wages don't keep up, keep up with inflation? And it isn't similarly true, regardless, that inflation works well for debt holders, Well, I'll start with the first part, which is something that we started experiencing since the 1970s on this country. Normally, you would have productivity increasing and wages increasing, real wages increasing at the same time. And that was true from the 1940s all the way to the early 1970s. As soon as that cycle of inflation of the 1970s happened, it was hijacked by the right, the political right in the economics profession, right, to say, aha, we told you all that big welfare spending and generous labor laws and labor unions, that's what caused inflation. It wasn't the conflict in the Middle East about oil. It was, you know, the, the working class and the middle class. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take advantage of this inflation cycle to increase prices and increase our market power. And we're going to go after Uh, government welfare spending and labor unions to divide the new wealth creation more towards the elites as opposed to workers. So we immediately started seeing wages slowing down in terms of wage growth relative to the gains in productivity. And that never stopped from the 1970s to this day. We have a massive gap between growth in wages and growth in productivity. So all of that Gains from productivity is going to the top 1%. Now, how did the working class of this country since the 1970s continue to fuel economic growth via consumer spending? Because our economy in the U.S. is 70% consumer spending. Mm -hmm. So if consumers don't have access to dollars to spend, the economy will go into a recession. So how did we substitute real growth in wages so that we continue fueling economic growth? The answer is access to credit, consumer debt, financial innovation to create credit card debt, mortgage debt, student loan debt, car loans, you you name it, reverse mortgages, um, you know, death bonds, all kinds of financial innovation to give working class consumers who don't have significant gains in, uh, in real wages to give them a substitute form of spending in the form of debt. And that's unsustainable obviously the system eventually you know breaks with massive consumer debt that that crushes uh consumers so when we had the 2008 financial crisis it was a massive consumer debt crisis linked to mortgages and and other things and we had to face we had to make a decision as a country at the time public policy decision do we restart the consumer debt engine and keep going or do we redistribute wealth creation more towards working class and middle class people? And the answer was, we're going to restart the lending engine, the consumer debt engine. And that's what we did. And that's where we are. So the next debt crisis, consumer debt crisis that we're going to have 
in this country is going to be much bigger than the 2008 debt crisis. What's the tipping point? Because isn't it the case, I mean, that so much consumer debt is already not getting paid back? You know, what what causes that bubble to burst in the way that the housing bubble burst in 2008? So every time you have a debt cycle, it fuels speculation on Wall Street. And speculation is great for speculators because you buy low and sell high and you keep the frenzy going uh, as long as you have access to credit from the Fed, from banks to continue fueling access to credit and to innovate new ways of giving consumers more debt to live beyond their means and go beyond their means. And uh, I mean, we're literally talking about reverse mortgages. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've discussed this on, on your show before, no, which not is yet. targeted at elderly people. Um, uh, in or, uh, elderly people in my grandparents' generation, your parents' generation, probably. For working class families, the most valuable asset a family builds over its lifetime is the house, the family house. And when the elders pass away, that becomes the inheritance for the, the, the younger family members. In many cases, it remains as the family house. In other cases, it becomes an asset that's then sold and distributed and it could you know, help somebody start a business, buy a farm or whatever it is. So that's how you build wealth over time. That's no longer the case because we've squeezed the working class down to a point where our elders are no longer able to live through their senior years financially. So mm-hmm. what do they do? They go to a bank and bank will be more than happy to finance your, you know, the last few years of, of your life in terms of medical bills and, and cost of living bills if you sign a reverse mortgage. And as the name indicates, it's the reverse of a mortgage. So the bank actually pays you a monthly stipend. And when the elders die, the bank owns the house as opposed to the younger generation inheriting and building wealth over time. So we're, we're pushing the limits in terms of squeezing the working class, the middle class out of wealth that they've tried to build over their lifetime. Uh, we have things called uh, death bonds. I don't know if you've, <laughs> you've heard of these things, but it's again, legal financial contracts that are designed to extract wealth from working class and middle class people. Death bonds are, are essentially um, uh, a packaging of life insurance policies. Like somebody my age, mm-hmm. uh, my mid-40s, I have young kids. I worry about their future if, if I pass away or something. You know, who's going to pay for their college? Who's going to pay for, for the house and so on? So what people my age typically do, I go and buy life insurance policy, which is a contract with an insurance company that says, if I pass away, my kids get X numbers of dollars. I don't know, a million dollars or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I pay a monthly premium for that insurance, for that guarantee. And this way I can, you know, be, uh, you know, in, in peace and knowing that my kids will be fine financially until they're 18 or something like that, pay for college. Mm-hmm. But lots of working class people, middle class people who have life insurance policies for these kinds of, you know, unexpected events. By the time they get their kids to college age, if I have two or three kids and they're all going to college more or less around the same time, it's a fortune, right, to mm-hmm. pay for college. Or it's going to be a massive student debt that they're going to live half of their adult life to pay for that debt. Mm-hmm. So what I can do with my life insurance policy is the following. I'm thinking, well, my kids have about four years worth of college. And if I can get them through that 
financial hurdle without student debt, then they're all set. They, they can start their careers and they'll be independent. And even if I pass away, I'm, I'm not too worried about that. They're adults and, and everything. But how do I pay the $200,000 to get them through college in the next four years? Well, I can take my $1 million in life insurance policy and cash it out in advance with the bank. So mm-hmm. that's another legal contract that I'm signing now with, with the financial institution that says, here's the deal. You give me $200,000 now to pay for my kid's education, and you, the bank, continue making monthly payments on my life insurance, and the day I die, you, the bank, get the million dollars. Yeah, what's so perverse about a lot of this, um, a lot of the ways these financial institutions have figured out how to wring extra money out of these agreements, is that the premise of these agreements is that they're very narrowly tailored to aggregate risk over a big population so that the individual who dies prematurely gets a benefit from insurance, but also the bank isn't out of money because most most people don't die prematurely. And everybody comes out on top. And the bank is very carefully running all of these numbers to perfectly tabulate how much you need to pay in premiums for it to be made whole given the average number of people who die, right? But then- The fact that all of these financial institutions are able to come in here like, and buy up the same way they were able to buy up all of these mortgages, package them up into high risk and low risk, and then sell them off again, suggests or indicates that the, the math that's underlying these is not so narrowly tailored, right? Someone sees there's more to squeeze out of here than the plan was initially designed, which on some level to me exposes the fraudulent nature of the fundamental, like the first instance financial product. Am I wrong? Like it doesn't seem to me that you should be able to have all these tiers of profit on the thing. If it were ethically and well designed in the first instance, and it just off every, every single one of the initial financial uh, instruments from health insurance or life. Yes. Health insurance, but life insurance to a mortgage. It's just a total scam. Oh, it's actually worse than that. If I, if I may add just the next step in this science of abuse, because they have it down to a science. Uh, to a science. Uh, the way I describe this, um, you know, me cashing out my life insurance and, and giving, you know, the, 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 the gains eventually to the bank, they would do that with 200 other people in my situation. And then they take those 200 life insurance policies and package them into a single financial instrument called the death bond. That's what the death bond is. And they would sell it to investors, just like mortgage-backed securities. And now the investors who are si- who are buying that death bond, backed by 200 people like me who worry about their kids and paying for their college education and so on, what are they betting on? They're betting on the 200 people, hopefully, from their perspective, dropping dead the next morning because they'll yeah. cash in the twenty, the two hundred million dollars immediately, as opposed to paying monthly premiums for who knows if I live to to be eighty or eighty five or ninety, right? Um, and, and that's really what's so mind boggling in terms of how far we've gone in the science of innovation for the purpose of abuse, for the purpose of extraction of of wealth from working class and middle class people. And why do we do it? Because we don't have free public education, because we don't have affordable housing, because we don't have uh, decent retirement um, and social security benefits for working class and middle class people, that they have to give up their homes, give up 
the wealth that they would normally pass on to uh, their children and grandchildren to build wealth within that within the community. That's such an important point that when we're talking about some of these broad, you know, programs that we all support as kind of Bernie leftists, that the consequences aren't just the obvious boogeyman. Like it's not just, oh, the health insurance industry is going down. It's all of these financial industries that have been built on the edifice of unfairness that are also going to be implicated in all of this. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, you know, I obviously have to get these health checks and stuff and your insurance rates, you know, your premium rates change depending on how healthy you are and how old you are and whether you're childbearing age and all that stuff. Well, they have to make that illegal, but you know, I'm wondering for these death bonds, are they running around trying to target people from populations that have bad health outcomes because it, it advantages people to die. It advantages them if their people die prematurely. I mean, this, I mean, this but, leads yeah. to a really freaky place, right? Yeah. They, they actually design kind of these, uh, these death bonds based on the health profile and life expectancy of the 200 individuals that they're going to package. And these are kind of handmade custom-made instruments. And what they love about these particular instruments, by the way, is the fact that they help investors diversify their portfolio in a substantially unique way, meaning that the death bond value doesn't fluctuate on a day-to-day basis like stocks and bonds fluctuate based on economic information and news and things like that, unless you can link you know, heart attacks to economic news or something like that. But they're essentially pretty stable and predictable. We know what happens to smokers, what happens to people who exercise and don't exercise, kind of your your health profile, uh, which is racial and uh, racial racialized and gentrified and, and, and so on. Right. Like that's what I'm thinking. Very, are you yeah. are you targeting like black folks the same way you did during like the, the mortgage market, you know, the mortgage crisis? You know, the same way you wanted to, to you know, because you know that, you know, the average black male life expectancy or whatever is 10 years lower than a white man or whatever it is. In yeah, numbers, yeah. But. And, and there is no regulatory framework for this. That's why I go back and saying law and economics, you have to set the boundaries for these contracts to operate. Otherwise, it's it's a free for all and everything is legal until you create laws or regulations to uh, to constrain it and frame it and uh, and allow it to operate for the public purpose, not for the purpose of, of abuse. And then there's a part of the story that I'm not especially qualified to speak to, but where all of the, these speculative financial in- instruments were enabled by legal changes in what, like the eighties. Um, and it wasn't always the case that these markets were allowed to exist. And then there were not, pre- they were previously, um, you know, the relationship between banks like, Bank of America, big banks and these speculative markets, the the Chinese wall that used to exist got decoupled, you know, got got taken yeah. away and deregulated. And so that is why when the speculative markets crash now, it has all these downstream effects on those of us who are not speculators. Um, and we got some things like 2008. Oh, absolutely. All, all financial innovations, as I, as I said, are legal contract modifications, innovations. And if the regulatory agencies that deal with that particular market are not watching, are not paying attention, or even worse, removing barriers, regulatory barriers, then we'll have speculative abuse in in any kind of uh, innovation. As a matter of fact, I I often argue that every financial crisis we've dealt with fundamentally can be traced back to some 
uh, contractual innovation, which we call financial engineering or whatever, mm. coupled with legal um, action that opens the floodgate for it. I'll, I'll give you an example. The credit card industry. Credit cards existed for a long time. They were, you know, exclusive to the wealthy, to businesses and so on. They, they were not as accessible to middle class, working class people like today. It took legal action to unleash the power of the credit card industry and to unleash that, that segment of, uh, of, the, um, of the consumer debt that we deal with today uh, in the U.S. And the two legal actions were, one, we removed usury laws. Uh, in South Dakota, which was the first state to reduce the maximum uh, interest rate, uh, remove the, the cap on maximum interest rates. Mm. Uh, these are usury laws which have you know, religious you know, uh, connotations and, and history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that opened the floodgates for the credit card industry to move to South Dakota. But that wasn't enough. The Supreme Court, um, in a decision called the Marquette decision, allowed credit card companies to charge the interest rate of the state in which the credit decision is made, which means I live in New York and I send a credit card application to a company that is physically opening my envelope in South Dakota, they can charge me the South Dakota interest rate as opposed to New York Mm -hmm. state interest rate. So even though New York state didn't remove the usury laws cap on how much interest you can charge, how high your interest can charge, as soon as South Dakota opened uh, for business and as soon as the Supreme Court says, relocate your office there, open your applications there, you can charge South Dakota interest rates. That's why South Dakota, Sioux Falls in South Dakota is the credit card capital of the world because they all moved there immediately and started flooding the country with credit card applications and, uh, and, and the, all the credit card processing um, you know, uh, applications and all that are done in South Dakota historically. That is incredible. Like I, it, I love how it's always like protect state sovereignty for conservatives until there's a loophole for everyone to make a bunch of money. Yeah. Um, that's that's great. I, I see the queue lining up, so I want to take a few more questions. I know, Professor, that you were you know it's late and you kind of hopped in here, sir. You know, kind of on the fly. So just feel free to tap out. Whenever it gets too late, or oh, I'll be I'll be a listener. Long. Please go ahead with uh, with everybody else. I, I didn't want to dominate the conversation, but no, I no, really there, enjoy, enjoy so, these conversations. I'm so glad you're here because there's obviously a lot of questions today about things that I am not personally qualified to weigh in on. So I'm so glad your expertise is in the chat. Yeah, I'll stay on mute. If you need me, I'll I'll hop in. Okay, cool beans. All right, case study. You're the next caller. How you doing? I am so good. Thank you for the professor being on. And matter of fact, he could unmute himself because I got a question straight for him. So, <laughs> um, so this is how I like to set this up. So when uh, the when Bernie was running for president, and the combat, the establishment com- combat to his Medicare for all was, oh, um, if you have good health care, you're going to lose it. So I was thinking, what's the in, in spirit of you know the last show we was talking about? What's good messaging? Like Medicare for all, the messaging I was thinking, hey, we could say the Congress people are going to have to be forced to have Medicare for all, which means that they're going to vote themselves the best health care. And why wouldn't you want to have the same health care as Congress people, right? So in in spirit of this show, we're talking about MMT. I would like to ask the professor, if he was running for office, if Stephanie Kelton was running for office, if Brianna Joy Gray 
finally listened to Case and ran at, in the house or whatever, <laughs> what would be her messaging for when they said, hey, MMT is going to, you know, cause is just running the paper machine and you're going to inflate the money <clears throat> supply. Um, when you get asked that question at the debate, what would be that perfect messaging that you can come back with that 10 second soundbite to uh, combat that? And uh, I'll jump off. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, I don't know about a 10 second uh, uh, soundbite, but let's say let's say Brie listens to us and, and she's the president of the United States. She has all the power. Right. And, and she's going to do something about, you know, health care and Medicare. And, and Brie decides on day one, not the full Medicare for all, let's say free dental care for everybody in the country. The federal government is going to pay for it. There's no problem whatsoever. So first thing I do, I pick up the phone and call my dentist, say, I need to schedule an appointment. Finally, we have free dental care. I've been, you know, without dental care for, for years, right? And the dentist will say, well, sure, we'll be happy to take you. The next available appointment appointment is in um, December 2043, right? Mm-hmm. Because we're booked up. Everybody's coming now. So we have shortage of productive capacity. <laughs> that doesn't solve the problem. And then they say, well, if you really want to, you know, be seen next Wednesday, we, we do have an opening but you have to have the gold premium membership and it costs $10,000, right? So now we have the same problem. So it's not just about creating the money to pay for it. It's about building the productive capacity. That's number one in the MMT framework, which means training uh, dentists and dental hygienists and building physical capacity with the resources and that we need in the, in the healthcare industry. And number two, taxing and regulating the abusive market power that allows the price gouging that happens in the health insurance industry that happens in the uh, and the medical industry. And, and, and here, since we're talking about the medical industry, the, the shortage of productive capacity in terms of training doctors and nurses is controlled by the American Medical Association mm-hmm. that puts quotas on how many students were allowed to train into medical schools mm-hmm. uh, so that we don't flood the system with doctors and nurses to have health care for everybody at affordable rates. So that's, that's beyond what can be done overnight. This is why countries have healthcare national strategies that don't rely on pharmaceuticals and, and medical um, um, uh, insurance companies and, and private hospital systems to design public health policies for us. When they do, they design it for people who can afford it. Mm-hmm. And if they can pay more, it's even better, which means excluding um, uh, you know, a significant portion of the population. So I don't know if it answers your your question, but it's it's a it's it's not a ten second soundbite. Yeah, that's tough. I'm thinking like in a debate, in in a debate or something like when they say that, can you say that response that you just said? Like, I'm, and also, um, are, did you were you born in the United States? I'm just curious for my own purposes of if no, I, I wasn't through you for president. No. Okay, I'm just curious, <laughs> but yeah, I was thinking more of like a debate situation. It's tough, and I understand it's tough. Well, Case, what's the question that you imagine needing to respond to in a debate specifically? Okay, so, the, and I apologize for being on the train, but the, let's say the question is, um, uh, Bree, you're, you're running on MMT. Isn't that going to inflate the money supply and make pe- a dollar pizza cost $20 in a year? Boom. 
So you're you're asking a specific question about what if you get asked, you know, is is MMT bullshit? Exactly. Not a Medicare for all specific question. Okay. My, I was just giving so, the Medicare for all example, and I was giving my answer what I think might be a good solution. That's an example. I, I'll, I'll give you the specific pizza answer here, which is, you know, what would drive the the price of pizza to go to go up? shortage of physical productive capacity to make pizza, including skilled labor, uh, equipment, natural resources. If we have plentiful supply of those resources, there's no reason for pizza prices to go up. Number two, if pizza companies have abusive market power and they can do it because there is no competition and there is no access for other people to enter the market, then yeah, and, and there's no canceling of Medicare for all or Green New Deal programs that's going to deal with that abusive market power other than regulating their price gouging and regulating their abusive market power and making that market more competitive so that other people can enter and compete and lower cost, right? So you have to call their bluff. It's not spending on healthcare that's going to inflate pizza prices. It's not spending on a Green New Deal that's going to increase real estate properties, and, and things like that. It's other existing market forces that will take advantage and and, and always hijack uh, a momentum of progressive public policies by saying, no, 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 that can't be done because it's going to be inflationary and try us because we will use our power and show you that inflation will kick in. Yeah, I think, Case, I, I hear you. And this is why, I mean, we talked about this a little bit, Professor, on the podcast about you know why Bernie didn't talk about this or doesn't talk about this more and some of the other progressives don't talk about this more during the context of the campaign there were some folks who asked you know why is why is Bernie engaging in these conversations about pay for why is he does he have pay fors in his plan why is he saying we're taxing the rich to pay for this when he could just do MMT and a part of me appreciates that there's so much work to be done about educating the public about MMT I can appreciate why you wouldn't want to take that on in the context of a financial cycle. I mean, it's easier in some ways if Bernie gets that question during a debate, you know, how are you going to pay for it to say, I'm going to tax the rich. It's much harder on some level, given the broad kind of political ignorance about this subject. And I don't mean that derisively. I just mean like, we're all, I have no idea. We're all learning. Um, It's much harder for him to say, well, in reality, the whole story about inflation you've been told your entire life is a lie and inflation doesn't happen just because you do spending, but it's because you do the wrong kind of spending. And if we spend on the infrastructure to not create a supply demand crisis, then everything will be fine. You know, like you can just hear everybody checking out and that's not to say that we shouldn't do it, but that's why I think that we need to be having these robust MMT conversations outside the context of someone's political campaign. Cause it's just too much to put on any candidate. And we need to get to a place where people that naturally understand spending doesn't equal inflation the same way they've been taught for decades. Spending does equal inflation. Like that's just going to absolutely completely agree with you. And as I said on, on the show the other day, we've been doing this for more than 20 years and we've, we've built momentum in the yeah. alternative media and the public discourse. And even in some mainstream media to the point where we do have a critical mass of people who understand it in the public constituents, even lawmakers, elected lawmakers who understand this. But we're, we're not there yet. We, we need a bit more of this critical mass to get to a point where we have a presidential candidate who can pitch that uh, argument that you presented in a 60-second soundbite and people know what he or she is talking about. Uh, yeah. I don't think we're there yet. So I'm, I'm not putting all the blame on, on Bernie in terms of these, uh, these debates. 
there were other opportunities, not during the campaign, in other context. Um, yeah. But we're, we're not going to go back and, and talk about the the Bernie campaign and, and, and what happened. We're talking about who we are and what we're doing right now and how do we keep building this momentum, educating, informing, empowering, and mobilizing people so that they're not cornered by people who say, oh, inflation is going to kill the system. Just keep the status quo. Everything is fine. Yeah. Thanks for that, case. All right, Eric, you were the next caller. What's on your mind? Just, hey, how are you? There you go. I'm doing well. Ah, thank you. So um, one of the things I've been listening to your podcast since you started, I'm really loving it. And um, I've been noticing a bit of a trend sometimes when we talk about certain issues. There always seems to be this under, uh, underlying theme of like uh, accelerism versus not accelerism. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I have a hard time understanding is like, why do so many people, even on the left, has a hard time? They get very, you know, aggressive towards the idea of accelerism because they think of it as, you know, things have to get worse before they have to get better. Mm -hmm. But I've always thought of it as if people are okay, they're not going to change it. So one of the things I wanted to get your thoughts on is this idea, for example, I mean, when you were talking to the professor about MMT and he brought up the truck workers and I, I view accelerism as to the truck workers with the stuff that was going on with the supply chain, things got so bad for them that they just decided to up and quit. So I'm like, I don't understand why the left don't utilize the idea of accelerism as just a tool of, of not, you know, things. I know I'm rambling a little bit, but no, things are, but things that the idea that things need to get bad before they get better as the idea just that when things get bad, that's what makes people want to change them. Yeah. So I think the, reason that people don't want to be pegged as an accelerationist is because there are, there's a there's a difference between things getting bad outside of anybody's control and being the one that makes it bad and that's kind of like a trolley problem issue right so mm. there's the ethical implications of being the one that creates some harm for a population so that ostensibly things will get a lot better and that ethical conundrum is exacerbated by the fact that no one's 100% sure that it's going to get better once you make it worse or that it's going to get good enough to justify how bad you made it worse. You know, is it worth it to, you know, kill baby Hitler or whatever and have the blood of the baby on your hands, you know, if it thwarts the Holocaust? I mean, yeah, sure. What if killing baby Hitler doesn't actually thwart the Holocaust and all you did was kill a baby? Well, you know, I don't know. <laughs> like, and, and that's that uncertainty that no no one wants the blood on their hands. So at the left, I think in particular, who's often characterized as like crazy, radical, unserious, basement dwelling, Antifa, blah, 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 all the things in the world just wants sometimes to seem serious. So they don't want to say anything that even comes up to the edge of accelerationism, even if they're not the ones that's pulling the trolley lever, even if it's, you know, I'm going to not vote. I'm going to withhold my vote. Maybe Trump will win. You know, something that's not them literally doing it, but it could be blamed for it. They still don't want to do it. My issue with that, even though I really understand the ethical responsibility that's hanging in the balance, is that I'd at least want to be having a conversation about what the consequences of not pulling the lever are. And I think that it's a perfectly reasonable ethical choice to make to say, you know what, the the benefits aren't worth, the the unknown benefits aren't worth the cost. But the way we talk about electoralism in in particular pretends like there's not all of these costs to the status quo. They're just grandfathered in. 
And I said this in the talk with Chomsky and people accuse me of like doing race identity politics or whatever. But as a black American, my posture is, you know, as a longtime resident <laughs> of America in this, you know, you know, after indigenous community is kind of like the the longest slighted group it feels a little like in each election cycle, there's a new group who is legitimately being maligned, like very legitimately so. And they are kind of held up as this is the reason why you should vote for whatever neoliberal comes down the pike. And I'm sitting here thinking about, well, we're still mad about all that other stuff that doesn't even get airplay anymore. And we've been dutifully voting for you for all this time. And the reason that we're not getting any airplay is precisely that we're dutifully voting for you. And how do we break that cycle? And what I said to Chomsky wasn't, we shouldn't vote for Trump, you know, you know, we shouldn't vote for Biden. It was okay. Even assuming that Trump is a unique threat and we should all vote for Trump. What do you think is ultimately going to break this cycle of vote blue, no matter who is in that leads us always to fall in line for a neoliberal candidate and never get any alternatives. Yeah. When you did that Chomsky uh, interview, I was like, you're literally talking to one of my older brothers. Cause he's exactly that mindset to the, to him. It's like, he doesn't follow politics as much as I do. So he doesn't understand the nitty gritty details. So to him, he looks at AOC and views her the same as Nancy Pelosi, which, mm. um, which is another point I wanted to make. I think one of the greatest things that Trump did was he was able to, even though he would do the same exact policies as a Mitt Romney, as a George W. Bush, people do not view him as Mitt Romney and George W. Bush. And when so there's a lot of people, when they look at AOC, and even, I'm sorry right now, even, I think Bernie kind of was able to do this to an extent at Trump, where people see Bernie, they view him differently than the Democratic Party. I see a lot of the new progressives, especially, you know, just the Democrats coming in, and because they're so unwilling to say, like, if you're going to take over the Democratic Party, you have to understand what that means. And I don't think they understand or at least aren't willing to do what it means to take over the Democratic Party. So a lot of people just look at them, oh, this is another Nancy Pelosi, or at least eventually going to be. Yeah, I mean, I, think, I, do, I do think that some people saw Bernie as... Uh, willing to confront the Democratic Party, especially in 2016, and they were very excited by that. And I think a lot of people on the left, at least, are increasingly unwilling to see many people, including Bernie even sometimes, in that light because of the disappointments we've now suffered, because of the disappointment of you know how Bernie conceded perhaps in 2020, because of the disappointment of this squad coalition that is larger it's you know significant the biggest cohort we've ever had and it didn't amount to much despite these really narrow margins in the house that gave them sincere legitimate power in the same way that joe manchin has it and we see the marjorie taylor green and people on the right flexing their muscle and making demands and you know we saw her make a list of demands of what she would need to vote for the republican speaker assuming they you know acclaim the house She's already got a list of demands out there. And as everybody who knows me knows, <laughs> I was very chagrined around force the vote when progressives wouldn't make any demands, basically, at least not publicly. And it didn't seem they got anything for voting for Nancy Pelosi. So, yeah, I think that's right. And that's why we have this very demoralized left. And that's why there's all of these conversations about how much we should support, you know, be invested in electoralism or give to candidates. And that's why... It's going to be a bloodbath in the fall, <laughs> among I agree. other reasons. And yeah. before I go, I just want to say one last thing. When we had uh, the same conversation about uh, um, accelerism, I look at it like this. I think we could, 
the left should be focused on accelerism in very strategic, uh, like bite-sized cases. For example, if you look at what happened in the civil rights movement, that was accelerism, but it was contained and it was planned. When uh, uh, Rosa Parks went on that bus, that was a planned event. It mm. was an accelerated event. It was mm. an ex- a form of acceleration that they did when they decided to crawl. When they there was. Everything they did was to accelerate a certain thing. They went to Alabama for a reason because they knew that the police there would act in a way. So they accelerated the um, the violent actions of the police. I forget the name of the particular sheriff when they crossed that bridge. They knew they were going to get beat up. Yeah, they knew they were going to get beat up and they literally decided that that's what we want to do. We want to accelerate this anger to show people this is what's going on. So I think if we find a way pick an issue, find a way to control it and contain it. Could be student debt. I don't know. But that's a thing that could possibly be a plan that the left could use. Thank you very much for taking my call. Thank you, Eric. That, that's really interesting. I never really thought about those kind of cases like Rosa Parks, you know, these staged legal cases as a kind of accelerationism. But that, maybe that is correct. You know, there, there are these moments and the right does this all the time now, like with these abortion cases where they intentionally or the that that uh, redheaded girl from Texas who was doing all the affirmative action stuff. You know, they intentionally bring cases because they're trying to make Supreme Court precedent. They're trying to change the law. Um, and I never really, I never really kind of framed that as any kind of accelerationism in my mind, but I guess it could be perceived of that way. I have to give that some thought, but thank you, Eric, for um, that, those thoughtful questions. Day, you're up again. I don't know if you're going to disappear. I hope <laughs> like not. You can you hear me? <laughs> I can hear you. How are you doing, uh, Day? I'm doing better now that I'm finally connected with both of you. <laughs> I was like, no, every time. Um, wow. I'm actually stunned because that question from Eric has me pondering as well. And it has me thinking back to, we. I think we briefly touched on the idea of like, our leftists, given our our likelihood to want to reduce harm, in comparison to our conservative counterparts, less likely to do actions like that Mm -hmm. because it does require somebody to fall on the sword Mm -hmm. in a way that we don't typically promulgate. So now I'm just kind of stuck on that, but I'll have to ponder on that later. Um, (laughs) But my question kind of goes back to QB because that was what I wanted to somewhat hit on, which was like the messaging aspect of everything. Because I was thinking about the press conference where the one official, and I apologize, I can't remember his name, um, spoke about MMT and directly credited Stephanie Kelton's book and how his acknowledgement of MMT was very promising. But like now we hear nothing about it. Mm. And I do agree that, you know, like Bernie could have used the four years between campaigns to kind of neutralize the how will you pay for it argument. But unfortunately, mm-hmm. he didn't. Um, he chose to try and do the whole this is how we pay for it via the current system, which I actually watched an interview from Stephanie Kelton admitting that that was intentional, I guess, during the campaign portion, because they were just like, it might be too hard to convince people of a whole new thing. So do we just say, if this is the system you use, this is how we'll pay for it. Mm-hmm. But my question kind of leans towards, do you feel it's possible for us to use the people in Congress to sort of push and educate the masses on MNT through, tradi- through traditional me- media to reach the masses, given that corporate media has such an alliance to the status quo? Because I keep tying it to the movie Don't Look Up, and I expect that tons of think tanks will be deployed to counter each and everything that you know, we'll try to speak on and they'll have more funding so they'll have larger reach and it won't be as much of a struggle for them to have access to traditional media given that 
they're already aligned with that ideology. Yeah, I mean, look, this was one of the arguments that was brought up during Force of Vote 2, which is if you take a battle to the public and corporate media, you're going to lose because of the nature of corporate media. And mm-hmm. I got to say, it is 100% true that you have to anticipate that the media is going to align against you. But also, that's an, that's an argument for never arguing anything ever, always. True. you know. And it is also the case that the media, just because it aligns against you, doesn't mean the people that you win, the people aren't with you. I mean, one of the interesting things about Don't Look Up is that it, the impression from watching the movie was that most of the people wanted to do the right thing. You know, mm-hmm. most of the people were like, let's blow up the asteroid. Like it wasn't <laughs> that the pe- there were a couple of characters who were like, we're here for the jobs the asteroid would provide. But it seemed like overwhelmingly, you know, China uh, sorry, spoiler alert, you know, whatever. Yeah, I'm not won't say anything big, but you know, like, you know, there were some people obviously who were very committed to just blowing up the the rock without their, trying to extract any profit from it. And it wasn't the people that thwarted those efforts, right? It was something else. (laughs) So, you know, I, I, my feeling is that, and the other counter example I will give is Trump. You know, people want to like memory hole the fact that the Republican Party was not for Trump. Like, he was in a crowded field and everybody hated him and was taking their shots at him and Fox News and and all of the conservative media was not aligned behind Donald Trump. But he kept going and the people liked him and he said, I welcome your hatred. And the fact that he was being maligned by the media, including the conservative media, you know, little Ted Cruz and little Marco Rubio or whatever, who was making fun of their wives and stuff like he played that to his benefit and was successful. Yeah. Look, look at all the people, people, people are mad at Ted Cruz now because he, you know, said that the one six was bad and now he's getting cascaded by the media. Like it's all over the place. (laughs) Yeah. Have you seen The Politician on Netflix before? Uh, the movie? Uh, it's like the TV show with Ben Platt, the guy from... The, uh, oh, yes, yes, yes. I watched I watched one season. Is there only one season? I think there's two now, but I think you've seen the season that I'm referring to. Do you remember when his mother, I think his mother was running for office? That's the most critical point. Wait, Gwyneth Paltrow? Yes, her character is like running for office. So if that is in the second season, I'm sorry if I spoiled that part. It's literally in like the first episode. I think but it I, might be I, the second season. Dang it. I bring that up because what you say about Trump is so interesting because essentially in that scene in the beginning of the second season, I guess, is that she is a leftist version of that. Like essentially they malign her. To be honest, and I don't mean this as disrespect to her because you know I love her. I actually feel like they modeled her after Marianne Williamson. Mm. But instead of making it a joke, they actually use someone who actually says, quote unquote, the most outlandish thing. Like she essentially is like, I think California should secede from the, from the, uh, from the U.S. Mm. And like by, by, by do, being so over the top in the way that Trump was, they create their own media cycle. And you see her behind the scenes mm-hmm. like, actually, this is all I want to do. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, is that what it's going to take? Because I often feel like with Bernie, he's an incredible person on the policy and staying on messaging. But I feel like as a politician, he was sometimes afraid to just lean in. He accepted the hatred from like the billionaires, et cetera, mm-hmm. but sometimes leaning into the caricature in mm-hmm. a way that would have driven the cycle the way that Trump did. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I'm like, do we have many figures on the left? And is it because that liberal media is somewhat the dominant culture now in comparison to conservative 
media being the dominant culture, is that why it's a little bit harder? I'm not really sure. Because once you get to the point where the masses are awoken about what MMT does, it does open the possibility for, you know, how we frame discussions, which is probably why they want to suppress it. Because I'm just like, then you have to start addressing, like the professor said, all the other things that actually are structural issues to the root of the problems that we're facing. And that ruffles the feathers of a lot of power players. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really good point. Like you have to create, if you say nothing about MMT, you are, you are consigned to, to engaging in the, how do you pay for it debate? It's not like not saying your truth is going to create a debate terrain that is advantageous for you. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not for you not to say what you really believe. All you're doing is then having a, you know, fight against trickle down economics for the millionth time. You're you're on their turf. They spent years teaching people terms like the invisible hand and trickle down and inflation, you know, inflation equals uh, spending equals inflation. And the left argues fully on that train. The same thing with the CRT debate, right? Yeah. They can, oh, they invented a thing. CRT hurts your children. They're trying to convince your children that they're racist. They invented <laughs> that. And yeah. now Democrats are trying to argue, well, that's not what CRT is and da 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 Okay, good luck with that. I would argue at this point, you got to just pivot. Attack, attack. The best defense is a good offense, right. <laughs> you know? Ch- change the conversation and make it about, okay, maybe you don't want to say, like, I'm going to explain to you MMT right now. Say, they've been lying to you about inflation. None of the inflationary moments historically that they point to have anything to do with spending. They all have to do with policy. And I'm telling you, the government has plenty of money to spend on you and your family in this crisis instead of bailing out corporations with the, um, uh, the what do you call it? The, the COVID, the COVID yeah, relief the, bill, which is the largest upper yeah. t- transfer of wealth. And did it up. The CARE Act. Yeah. yeah. Conser- conservatives are mad about the, the accusing Democrats of protecting the salt cap. And this is really about a payout for billionaires. They're right. And everybody in Congress should be outraged about the fact that the most, the biggest spending item in the Build Back Better bill is another giveaway for the upper middle class and rich. Enough is enough. Like, Let's have a different conversation. You're concerned about schools and CRT. I don't give a fuck about CRT. Let's have a conversation about the fact that our kids are being put between a rock and a hard place. And this is a whole other kettle of fish about what to do about the education system. But at the end of the day, we need to, you you know, we, we can all agree on this. Teachers need to be paid well. We're essential workers. They're in a hazardous situation. We need to figure out how to educate our children in the long term because people have legitimate concerns about what this out-of-school education is going to be. And the question isn't to put teachers against students and teachers against parents, but to get together as a community and figure out the best way to make sure that your kids are getting educated and our teachers are safe. Like, we could be talking about how we fund our schools with property taxes. Like That's a bigger and more better how terrible your education will be or not. Those are things we should be fi- pivoting to but because a lot of these people don't actually believe in the policies that would eradicate a lot of the suffering which would put people at ease and not be bothered by things like CRT. 100%. You you don't know you don't you don't even get to my opinion on vaccine mandates if I've come out swinging with a position about the corrupt pharmaceutical industry. Period. You know, you get to control the terms of the debate. If you sit there waiting for someone to bring something up, then you're going to be playing on their turf. And, and is that why we've continuously seen the left like Pac-Man eating after the little pellets go to the right, farther and farther to the right, because they resign themselves as a defensive animal instead of being a predator in the way that 
conservatives are. Like they will say the most radical thing. They'll say build a wall and they don't back down from it regardless of the pushback. And I wish that sometimes the left had the same chutzpah that the right does to believe in what they believe in and go out there on the attack and force them to be in a position to defend it, which often they oftentimes the right can't do on economics. Right. They might be able to have an argument on some culture things, but not on economics, but we don't do that. So, Well, some of why we don't do that, I think, is, you know, comms negligence. But I think a lot of it. And by we, I mean, you know, Democrats, not, yeah. but <laughs> some, of, some of the reason why liberals don't do it is because they don't believe in it. You know, they cannot do it because if they did it, they would be successful. And I know this is maybe too cynical for some people's appetite, but if they said it, people would believe it and then they'd have to do it. And then that would be a problem for them. But I mean, we still don't have $10,000 of canceling student debt. So do they really have to do it? No, I'm just kidding. That, that was my clinical <laughs> take for the next time. Right. Well, that's why they, they know they can blatantly ball face lie. There's been this erasure in the corporate media where if you tweet right now, Joe Biden said he'd cancel student debt. You'll get a bunch of K-Hive types in your mention saying Joe Biden never said he'd cancel that. Like they literally don't know. Just like they didn't know she tweeted $2,000 and then changed it to 1400 plus to 600 We can't. Right. We got to operate in the real world. It's like math. Once they get in the imaginary stuff, I'm like, y'all, let's come back to reality. Right. And that's I guess. Thi- yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that that's the other thing about these progressives. It's like every time you're on TV, you could you there's a record. Like as an attorney, I'm like, there's a record. Impeach them. Go on TV with a tweet. Do it with a smile and say, you know what? You know, I support. I supported the vice president's agenda during the primary where she forcefully advocated for $2,000 recurring checks. And I look forward to hearing her continue to advocate for that. Now that she is the second most powerful woman in America. Ostensibly. There you go. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, because I'm like, once people know that the pay for it game is an illusion, it's a distraction. Yes. People, I believe that it's possible with the right messaging that people will be willing to start voting their conscience. Because if the only reason you're telling me I can't vote for Bernie is it's not practical to pay for said things. Yes. Once that barrier is removed, I can look at candidates totally different. Like if I say, no, Joe Biden, you could actually eliminate all student debt. This is a lie. Get out of my face. Or, you know, person, we don't have to do. It frees you up. And yes. so... I feel like that should be, I know we're in the search of who can run in 2024 to push Biden left or Kamala, et cetera. Yes, that's important, but we still have two years to really do a lot of work to make that ground easier. Because if we don't do any of the work necessary, they're going to run into the same issues that we've run into. And Bernie was the best in terms of, you know, the all the work that was done in 2016 made him the best candidate in 2020 to really have a chance. And we still came short. So, yeah. 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 Well, thank you for that day. I'm going to, um, oh, my no, battery is running low. And so I'm going to speed through these next ones. Oh, uh, Professor, good. did you want to weigh in at all on uh, that? Just wonderful conversation. I just wanted to add one thing. Just remember what Martin Luther King said in the context of the civil rights movement. He said, I have no time for the tranquilizing drug of gradualism mm. and incrementalism. Mm. In our context today, I mean, this is what the status quo is. It's gradualism and, and bipartisan incrementalism. And I work with a lot of really progressive candidates who, who go into their campaigns for Green New Deal, Medicare for All, reparations, you name it. And then they have to face the question, how do you pay for it? Well, you're going to tax this or borrow from that in order to pay for it. Sooner or later, if that's your framework, you're going to be an Nancy Pelosi. 
you're going to be an incrementalist because you can't tax that much and you can't borrow that much and you fall within the framing of mainstream politics and mainstream economics. If you don't have an MMT framing where you can answer the inflation question, answer the national debt question, answer all of these questions and show that we can deal with um, all the needs of the public, but it would require tackling the powers, the corruption in the system and everything we've talked about, then you might as well just start off from the beginning as a Nancy Pelosi candidate. Yeah. Yeah, we have to pick a side when it comes to the framing of your of your agenda. Yeah, it, it's so core. You're right. You can't dodge away from it. I also just I wanted to say that we did an episode um, about Build Back Better uh, with Stephen Simler. And part of why I wanted to talk to Stephen Simler is because he has this background talking about the um, defense budget and military spending. And I do think that that's a real opening for the left to just compare the approach to spending on those two things. It's a really basic analogy that people can get. You know, you cannot, you know, tell me you care about the national budget. You cannot tell me that you have to have pay for spending line for all of these stuff and that this is a priority for you. If you have been blindly, you know, increasing the military, the defense budget beyond what is even being demanded every year and everybody across the aisle votes for these things without any question about the pay-fors. I mean, that's an example of asking a question that puts them on the defense, defensive. Explain to me why we spend so much on defense and it's like the bigger than the next 10 countries' defense budgets combined and that you've never asked a single time in the history of your congressional career how we're going to afford it. And then let them make sense of their own economic system logic. All right, guys, you're going to be the last one. Sam, you are – oh, sorry, Dan, I accidentally just skipped you. I forgot I already put you in the caller's queue. Get back in there, and I'll, and I'll answer your question, Dan. But, Sam, you're the next caller. Oh, hi there, Brianna. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. What's on your mind, Sam? Um, well, I actually – so I um, talked with you last time about my opinions on economics and that um, inflation in and of itself – um, in this current economy, is benefits the wealthy so much that they have a fraction of the wealth that they create through inflation in this current shareholder um, economy um, goes to buying off politicians and paying off lobbyists to decrease their taxes and increase their own wealth overall and perpetuate this current system, as well as the Fed being full of elitists that um, perpetuate that system as well. They're their friends. They're one big circle. The only person wealthier than the people fed is Nancy Pelosi. So I don't see a way in which MMT can um, solve these problems when with the Cantillon effect, those people that are closest to the money printer end up becoming the wealthiest while the while, uh, workers can't keep up with inflation, right? I mean, I, I've heard to bring up so many times, but that is never actually tackled. How do we solve these problems? other than a theoretical construct of maybe one day we can do it, but it can't be done when the people that benefit from this perpetuate it and they're the ones that will continue to control as long as they hoard the wealth. Mm. So personally, I'm, I'm, I'm myself in, in favor of a hard money economy in which you, which wars decentivize because you can't print money. You need to actually tax the wealthy to perpetuate war. Um, and there's not an inflationary economy, rather a disinflationary economy with zero credit, uh, no incentives for shareholders. Just work is paid. Work is paid for, and productivity and wages correlate with one another. 
and working people can save money and start their own businesses or, you know, just work for a living and earn income rather than debt-based economies that pull forward um, pull forward um, the future in terms of like spending and then eventually blow up with the wealthiest getting bailed out and money printer keep going better. What do you make of that, Professor? That sounds, I mean, that sounds like the anti-MMT angle. Should we go back to a money economy? Yeah, I, I sympathize with the with the motivation and with the sentiment uh, there, but I'm I'm afraid that I'll, I'll have to say that this is not practical. You can't run a, a large scale economy that has technological innovation, has you know lots of moving parts with uh, with the way that that Sam described a, a money system. It, it's much more complicated than that, but that doesn't mean that we should you know hand the power to those who abuse it. I mean, that, that's what MMT does. It really shines the bright light on the abuse of power and demonstrates that money is a, a, is a public good, that the government of the people, by the people, for the people, has the power of the purse and has the capacity to pre-distribute wealth in an equitable way, in a strategic way, uh, in a purposeful way that serves the public purpose. And that that power is abused via the corruption that we're describing in, in many of these conversations, and that we can do something about it to take back democracy. Yeah. Um, Dan, you are now in the queue. Apologies for earlier. What's your question? Unmute yourself when you get a chance. Hey, um, no, no worries. Um, glad you got me in quickly here, but, um, I, um, as another person who's proudly never taken an economics class, I thought this was a fantastic episode to learn some economics. (laughs) Um, uh, you know, one thing I thought was really interesting is, um, I think the power of learning the history of economics that you guys were talking about early in this live episode, um, thought that was pretty cool. And that's kind of what ended up getting me more interested in it. I feel like I saw economics early on and I'm like, okay, this is clearly like bullshit. This doesn't make sense in terms of like, you know, there's ecological limits to the world. We can't grow endlessly. Um, but learning about the the history of it, seeing that there's different possibilities and all that, I think is a really powerful thing. And I think it's really interesting that you were pointing out how it's been um, cut from a lot of curricula. So um, that I, I'd like to hear a little more of uh, both of your thoughts on on learning the history of economics and the power that has. Um, though I do also have a, a, since we have an economist, I do have a specific question about inflation, because I thought this idea that the real thing that drives inflation is, you know, mismatch of supply and demand. Um, really powerful, makes a lot of sense in a way I think a lot of the other explanations don't. But... One of the examples um, classically given, and that um, this or our economist here, sorry, I forget your name, um, uh, spoke of was like Zimbabwe, and part of what fueled that inflation, if I'm remembering correctly, was that um, the worker, like the police workers or whatever they were, were demanding higher pay, and that sort of fueled um, the inflation taking off. 
And that sounded a lot like the kind of right-wing arguments you hear about the 70s inflation, that um, unions had negotiated price um, rises pegged to inflation, and that that caused um, increases. And so I'm just wondering, you know, t- taking yeah, a good faith yeah, version that, of that <laughs> argument, what, what's the truth there? Yeah, it, what, what caused the inflation in Zimbabwe was not police officers demanding higher wages. It started with the land redistribution from the white, large-scale owners minority to the native African population. Except when that was done, it was done badly in a way that gave the most fertile, productive land to people who were not farmers, who were not interested in farming. There was a huge drop in food production immediately by almost 50%. So it created right. scarcity of food. So food prices went through the roof. And as a response to that, because of the riots and the instability that was happening because of inflation, because people were going hungry, the government had to keep the police on their side and the military on their side. They paid them higher wages so they can afford to buy food for their own family, which fueled inflation because now you have a handful of officers with lots of cash going to the same market to outbid everybody else. So it kept driving inflation. And the next step became smuggling food from South Africa, from neighboring countries, via armed networks that include corrupt police and military military and border uh, officers and and so on. And and that became a cartel of food and gasoline and medical um, medicine trafficking system that kept fueling inflation. Okay, thank you. That's very clarifying. And if I could tag on just one more question about the 70s thing, something I've never really understood well. Um, what was the Volcker shock and what did or did not that, what, what effect did, did or did not that have on curbing inflation? It had nothing to do with curbing inflation. The, the source of okay. the 70s uh, inflation was a conflict in the Middle East that quadrupled oil prices. Everything increased in cost in terms of shipping and and cost of petrochemicals and everything. But the mainstream narrative, which is the narrative, by the way, that we're about to use right now by the Fed, is to raise interest rates to break the back of inflation, which is what Volcker did. And when you raise the interest rate, you increase the cost of doing business for small businesses here in the U.S. You actually fuel inflation because the source of inflation was in the Middle East. It wasn't here in the U.S. It wasn't workers. It wasn't consumers. It wasn't small businesses. They're about to do the same thing and hijack the narrative. Because, as you just said, most people in the average American today will tell you what happened in the 70s was labor unions were too strong. So the Fed mm-hmm. had to break inflation by raising interest rates. And that's what we're about to do now. We're, we're blaming, we, not me, but the mainstream of the profession and policymakers are saying, well, this COVID inflation, and we need to deal with it. And the Fed is going to raise interest rates. And for the next several decades, we're going to blame the inflation of 2020, 21, 22, the COVID inflation on the CARES Act spending, on subsidizing the unemployed, on paying for, you know, uh, food for, for children with unemployed parents, on, on you know, canceling the student debt or, or, or all yeah, of When the real cause is going to be what they're about to do, right? Well, the real cause of this inflation... Yeah is the abuse of market power, the disruption in supply chain, the COVID waves that are disrupting the global economy. It's not 
Professor, you're going a little bit quiet from time to time. I'm not sure if you're moving your phone around or anything. I just want to let you know it's a little difficulty. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I'm on my iPad. Ah. <laughs> the, the, the classically uh, eloquent for most things uh, Apple device. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I heard that. <laughs> um, th- thank you for that, uh, Dan, and for those thoughtful, thoughtful questions. I see Thanks. Nick has hopped into the queue. And I'm distant. I said the guest was going to be the last one, but because I kind of gave Nick a hard time, I'm going to let him be the last one. But let's get through the, this next one kind of quickly. Guys, uh, you are the next caller. Hi. Hi. I love the show and I especially loved the last episode. So thanks for taking my call. Um, Thank you, guys. I wanted to, yeah. I wanted to ask um, Have you thought about if so, um, you get to make some of these? moves that are supported by the the mmt by this theory um what might be ways that they can then be exploited you know by some of the same people who you know create all these financial instruments you discussed earlier and are so good at manipulating whatever system they're sort of faced with has there been any thought about anticipating how they'll then exploit this new dynamic and maybe any kind of regulation that can be put in place to help curb that. Hmm, interesting question. Uh, are there vulnerabilities to MMT professor? Oh, I'm, I'm going to shock you with this answer. It's already being done. The hmm. system that we have right now is already using the MMT insights for the benefit of the 1% for the benefit of the super PAC sponsored, uh, you know, politicians and corporations. MMT is not saying we need to implement MMT. MMT is describing how the system functions and it's shining a bright light and showing that the power of the purse that Congress has is being manipulated to serve the interest of the 1%. And we're saying the lawmakers that we elect have the responsibility to protect democracy, a government of the people, by the people, for the people, and use the power of the purse, the taxing and regulation power of uh, the federal government to democratize the system, democratize the economy, and fund the right investment policies that we need for the country, tax and regulate abuse in the, in the system. So MMT is not saying we're waiting to be implemented. We're saying it is already being implemented. And by the way, it's not me saying this. Dick Cheney said it. Uh, uh, who's the other uh, right wing? Um, uh, talk oh, our show. hero, uh, our hero, Dick Cheney. <laughs> it, yeah, said, of course we know that the deficit doesn't matter. We know how this. We, Reagan proved it in the in the 80s. But don't tell the progressives. <laughs> Let them, you know, spinning their wheels in this. We need to tax this and pay that. Mm. I mean, the right wingers completely understand this. They're saying, Shh, don't tell anybody. <laughs> Let us yeah. keep using it. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, guys. Sorry, did you have a follow-up? Oh, yeah, sure. Well, I I think then I misunderstood something about it because I thought it wasn't just about um, that it's good to tax and regulate. Um, I thought that that what it's really new about it is it sort of challenges the notion that you should be so afraid to uh, keep printing um, money, that that was like the main divergence from sort of the way uh, economists talked about or what they thought was a safe thing to do before. And, and that's what I'm saying. We're already spending and printing oh. the money to fund things, uh, but see. not for the public purpose that you and I and Bree are talking about. 
I to see. funnel wealth Thank you. to the top 1%, to subsidize oil and gas companies. I see. All right. Thank you for that, Gez. Great question. I really appreciate it. And bringing up the rear, last but not least, we have Nick. How are you doing tonight, Nick? Hi, uh, I'm fine. Hoping to redeem my status as straw man of uh, stereotypical white male leftist. Not at all. I really did appreciate you asking that question because I think you heard lots of people were feeling the same way and not just white listeners either. So I appreciate you for being the brave one to put put that perspective out there uh yes uh happy to uh, i don't know what uh i'm, I'm very cold <laughs> i just walked in for walking my dog uh so excuse me um so the thing that i wanted to talk about was um and hopefully this is short considering that this is the end of it and i feel like this is tangential to the discussion but um so one figure that I'm obsessed with, and Brie, I feel like you should look into this person and uh, Public Banking Institute. Her name is Ellen Brown. I don't know if you're familiar with her. Mm-mm. So um, not only was she kind of a big figure in that uh, Measure B push in California for public banking that Bernie was supportive of, but um, one of her, I, I don't know what you'd call it, field of study, like a thing that she constantly emphasizes. Uh, another thing, Brie, are you familiar with the Bank of North Dakota? I am not. See, this is fascinating because uh, the Bank of North Dakota is actually the only socialist bank in America. It's in a red state. Conservatives don't touch it. It actually uh, remained robust and completely intact after the 2008 financial crisis. It's this holdover from the uh, populist farmers movement. But the thing about it is, is that it is this insular banking system that actually benefits the people of the state rather than actual shareholders. It doesn't exist to generate profit. So not only has it existed for like oh, over a hundred years now, it's survived all of these, uh, you know, moments of financial turmoil that we all think about in, you know, consciousness, uh, all the time that just kind of define all of the, uh, economic talking points in this country. Um, and something that I'm confused about is that I never hear anybody in MMT or even Bernie Sanders talk about it. And I was curious if there is like an M- MMT focus on it or framing of it or understanding of it or why it's left on the table, considering it's such a perfect example of an actually like beneficial financial system that is actually not only supported by, but left completely intact by Republicans because nobody actually wants to be the one to uh, disparage or attack it. Do you have a take on that? Oh, absolutely. I'm I'm glad you brought this up. I'm I'm good friends with uh, Alan Brown, and if you go to the institute that I run, the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity, the one of the very first policy notes that we published actually was by Alan Brown on on public banking, <laughs> and the second one, maybe the third one, was uh, about uh, the most successful public bank in the history of the United States, and it's called the United States Post Office, USPS was the most successful public bank, so successful that the um, financial industry lobbied to have Congress shut it down because it was that competitive. (laughs) It was that good. Um, So, yeah, MMTers have talked about public banking for for a long time. Uh, It's not the silver bullet that will fix all of our problems, but it's certainly part of the solution, uh, at least at the state level. Uh, if not at the national level, to provide financial services for the unbanked and the millions of unbanked and underbanked people in, in the United States, excluded completely from uh, from the financial industry. 
So I'm, I'm all with you 100%. We should definitely do a public banking episode for sure. I made a note in my journal <laughs> and that will be forthcoming. I'd love to get uh, Ellen Brown on the show or anybody else who would want to, to weigh in, but thank you for that, Nick. Yeah. And if you want to get just a brief, um, understanding of her um she's done several interviews with ralph nader on the ralph nader radio hour Mm -hmm. so if you go into the archives through there uh you can get a good feel for what she's like and what she believes in i think that she would be a great guest and i i feel like i i mean look i love the bernie movement for you know and been, been a big part of it over the last six years but i hear almost no one ever talk about her or the bank of north dakota and i feel like it's a big uh um, shouldn't be left on the table. That's all I'm getting at. Okay. Well, thank you for that, Nick. I really appreciate it. And I want to, oops, I cannot work this thing. Um, I want to say big thank you to you, Professor, for hopping in. I didn't expect to be joined by you and get more of your time. And I really appreciate that you've been here with us for an hour and a half answering all these questions that were incredibly above my pay grade. Um, I don't know if you plan to keep using this app, but people should go ahead and follow you so that if you do participate in another call or start a podcast of your own or have a little chat of your own, that they can get alerts for that. And can you let everybody know where they can find you on social media and follow your work? Oh, sure. You, you can find me on Twitter. If you just uh, Google my name I'm on Twitter, I'm at follow Kaboob. Um, I don't plan to start my own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I have too many things on, on my plate, but it, it's been a, a great pleasure to be with you twice this week. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation. I'll have the app on, uh, on this device and I'll uh, check out your conversations in the future. Fabulous. It's really, it's really my treat. Uh, thank you all for joining. The full interview with Professor Kaboob is up on Bad Faith YouTube. You can also listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to all of you who subscribe to Bad Faith Podcasts and enable us to continue to do that work. And as always, keep the faith. <laughs> Sorry, wrong button. <laughs> Wish I was a lion in the tall grass Wish I had a pilot in a podcast Wish I had a strong donkey that can holler ass And travel with portable speakers playing bars, scats Wish I had a million dollars I wish I had a million albums I wish I had a million problems That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes I wish I found a genie lamp I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man yeah. I wish I was a comedian A late night sitcom syndicated on TV land I wish this well had water in it These kids are stealing all my pennies Focused on my wealth You can help me wish But I would rather wish for help It's like, it's like I wish, I wish That every time we love and it feels just like this I wish, I wish That every time we do it it feels just like this I wish, I wish That every time we love and it feels just like this It feels just like this It feels I wish I had a time machine Wish I had a better